0: This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, We have another episode in store. This one, surprise, surprise, is about COVID-19. And my brother is joining me for the episode today. John, welcome from Calgary.
1: Hey, Mike. How's it going?
0: Not too bad. So you were just saying winter has come to Calgary. Is that right?
1: Believe it or not. Yeah, like we have snow on the ground. I'm looking out my window and snow is actively falling. It is uh, October 18th. And in fact, the first snowfall was, I think, maybe five days ago.
0: Yeah, so so yeah, maybe you guys are like winning the battle against COVID in Alberta, but at least for the weather, Toronto's got you covered for now. Seems like it. Yeah, although I'm going up to the Sioux in a few days, so I'm curious to see if there'll be snow on the ground. but. Anyway, I I guess we will find out. So yeah, today, John, I just thought it would be a bit of a casual conversation about our, you know, shared experience caring for people who are hospitalized with uh, COVID-19. So how does that sound to you?
1: Yeah, I think that's nice. I think there's a lot of things we can highlight. You know, the clinical presentation is stuff that we've talked a bit about, some of the initial investigations, but then also speaking to the data that's coming through the door around what helps and what does not help when it comes to managing and treating people with COVID-19.
0: Yeah, completely. And I think it's one thing to read about COVID, and it's a whole other thing to be caring for patients with COVID. So, you know, at least what I've seen on my end here at Mount Sinai, I haven't seen anyone in the Sioux uh, yet with COVID. But, you know, the symptom constellation can be just about anything. I find most of the people I'm seeing in hospital, they're not asymptomatic, but certainly we've seen cases diagnosed among people who've had no symptoms. But certainly you know, I've seen the cough, the fever, the shortness of breath, and maybe a little bit of the loss of smell. Um, It has been pretty remarkable seeing the degree to which people are febrile. You know, if you look at the initial studies, it seemed like the presenting temperature was 37.5 or so, but I'm seeing sort of 39.2, 39.5, which in, I don't know, American units is above 102 or 103. Um, So that struck me for sure.
1: Yeah, I think that in addition to those kind of presentations, the other ones that I've been very humbled by have been the GI presentations. You know, strictly diarrhea as the chief complaint with some non-specific abdominal pain, really no respiratory symptoms and positive for COVID-19.
0: Yeah, and I think similarly I remember being awoken A couple nights back, uh, and there was a patient who was in his 90s and wanted to leave against medical advice. And, you know, I'm sort of groggily hearing this story. And, you know, in the light of day, when you take a little bit of a closer look at the time, you know, test result was pending. But then you saw elevated ketones in somebody who didn't have, you know, frank diabetic ketoacidosis. But now I've seen a couple patients who don't have much in the way of symptoms. But if you look closely at their blood work, there's an elevated anion gap, as well as uh, positive ketones. So um, that's also been pretty humbling for sure. Um, And I think something that's been reported in the literature, at least on the case report, case series level, but you know, there's a case report for everything. But it's been interesting to see that, you know, from a physical exam standpoint, usually it's, it's fairly unremarkable, apart from the fever, maybe a little bit of tachycardia, you know, for the most part, these are not individuals who are floridly septic and certainly not in septic shock. And I've seen, you know, probably about a third of the patients are coming in with, you know, decently impressive uh, hypoxia, but I'm not sure what your experience has been like.
1: Yeah. Kind of speaking along the hypoxia, I've seen this um, term used of kind of the happy hypoxic and and that's been something else that's been quite remarkable is someone talking to you looking quite comfortable um, when you're assessing them but you're just seeing their oxygen saturation drop pretty precipitously with you know any amount of exertion for example it's quite something to see it doesn't really that low oxygen number does not correlate with sort of what you're seeing clinically
0: yeah and you know i haven't seen any patients that have kind of fit into that mold but i've definitely heard this idea of this like you mentioned happy hypoxia where they're profoundly hypoxic and the numbers terrifying but they kind of feel okay. So, yeah, that's got to be a bit frightening to see. I think, you know, as I alluded to, there's certainly some clues when it comes to, you know, lab results. And this one's certainly debated, um, but I'm yet to see somebody with COVID 19 who doesn't have a low lymphocyte count. And, you know, you got to respect the fact that lymphopenia can happen certainly in critical illness, but I'm a general internist. I'm not seeing the people who are critically ill, but just time and time again, seeing lymphopenia seem to be a hallmark, but there isn't a ton of data to support that. So, you know, maybe that's just some form of a bias that's led me to that belief.
1: Yeah. And so when you guys have your order admission sets, is there any kind of routine numbers that you're ordering on all of your COVID patients? I think up front we may have been,
0: although I think it's kind of fallen by the wayside. So before it was. You know, obviously everyone's getting a CBC, lights, creatinine, and then CRP, ferritin, D-dimer. Those were part of the initial order set uh, at Sinai and then at St. Mike's. But, you know, across the street at Toronto General, that wasn't the case and certainly not up at Sunnybrook. But you know, like, at least the literature seems to suggest that these tests arguably um, have the best predictive power in terms of identifying not does this person
1: have COVID-19, but instead, you know, how are they going to do? Um, And so other things along the lines of initial investigations, um, imaging wise, we've spoken a bit before from some of the cohort studies, which were kind of characterizing patterns of changes that you might see on x-rays or CTs. Is there anything that you've been uh, seeing that's in keeping or not in keeping with what we've heard of before?
0: Um, Yeah, you know, I've had a couple where chest x-ray was You know, sort of looked okay, and uh, the first uh, SARS-CoV-2 test came back negative, and somebody ordered a CT chest, and the sort of radiologist read it as this is classic for SARS-CoV-2, and in the end of two, they were right both times. For the one person, their first swab came back negative, and we repeated it, but in another person, as we were waiting the result, the radiologist sort of you know made the claim and and was correct, and. There is some very interesting work being done from a machine learning standpoint that allows uploading of chest X-ray images and CT chest images and running it through a pretty impressive algorithm to provide a kind of, you know, pre probability of whether or not that person has COVID-19.
1: That's pretty incredible. You know, unrelated, you and I had talked about studies looking at machine learning for ECGs. And so I'm not surprised that they're, you know, using the technology to explore diagnosis within imaging. It's, that's incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the the big one that's going on right now is this uh, one that we're participating in is uh, of chest x-rays. And I mean, if we're in a setting where you can get the test result back very quickly, then, you know, maybe this isn't useful. But I think we've all been burnt uh, in the scenario where the first test comes back negative, but then on repeat, the test is positive. So yeah, maybe the imaging and some fancy machine learning might be able to uh, help with determining who does or does not have COVID-19. A couple other labs, actually, I just wanted to reflect on. So certainly, when it comes to CBC, and in particular, the platelet count, it's extremely rare to have a platelet count less than 100. So, you know, COVID-19 does not cause a thrombocytopenia. And I think that is important for people to realize because, you know, with a bad gram negative sepsis, of course, you can see pretty bad thrombocytopenia. But really, that's not what you should be seeing with COVID-19. So the importance of asking why is this person so thrombocytopenic and making sure you're you know, uh, ruling out the frightening things like, you know, DIC, for example.
1: Sure. You know, maybe we can speak a little bit about management principles, uh, because of course, there's been a ton of research coming out. Most recently, some of the solidarity data, which is really still preprint. But I think we know a lot more than we did six months ago about what doesn't work, but also a bit about what might work.
0: For sure. And I want to ask you, why are you skeptical of the fact that it's a preprint? I'm curious about that.
1: You know, I think there's just something about the data that I'm reading and interpreting has been published in a peer review paper. And so I think it's great that we have access to the preprint uh, information, but I don't know, sometimes I just like the checks and balances of, uh, of a journal going through the peer review process.
0: Yeah, that, that's fair. I think I'm less concerned when it's a massive randomized trial, and such as the Solidarity. And if you look at the recovery data, for example, there wasn't a single change between the preprint and then the final New England Journal of Medicine publication. And I suspect it'll be the same with this. But anyway, I guess it's another conversation about preprint versus uh, peer review. Because in the observational world, I completely agree. And I think as much as I love observational research, we've just seen observational research really get the wrong answer on multiple fronts when it comes to COVID-19. So I find myself really wanting that randomized trial data before I know, is this fact or fiction?
1: Yeah, that's fair. And you know, maybe speaking specifically about recovery. So you know, of course, recovery gave us a lot of important information about dexamethasone. Uh, Just as a reminder, this was a randomized controlled trial. In this case, 2100 patients were randomized to receive dexamethasone. And it was six milligrams given up to 10 days. And the outcome that they looked at was was all cause mortality within 28 days. And what did they find? Well, within a subgroup of patients either on oxygen or mechanically ventilated, there was a mortality benefit. So for those patients on oxygen, they showed a 3% absolute mortality reduction with an 18% relative reduction. And in those mechanically ventilated, it was a 12% absolute mortality reduction with a 36% relative reduction. I mean, I think there are some criticisms of recovery, uh, things that I've heard and read other people comment on include, you know, no markers of disease severity. And so some questions about how comparable the two treatment groups were. But I think recovery was really the the first paper to solidify that there is certainly a role for dexamethasone in these patients. So those on oxygen or in the ICU mechanically ventilated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I haven't seen a real valid criticism of that paper. And I think it's so easy for people to, you know, play armchair quarterback. But you know, if you disagree, or if you think they got it wrong, awesome, what are you doing to contribute to the literature and to contribute to what we know. And certainly for me, yeah, if you're hypoxic and you're hospitalized, absolutely, you're getting dexamethasone because that that mortality benefit on a relative scale on an absolute scale is just remarkable.
1: It, it is pretty incredible. You don't see those kind of numbers for other trials in and- And, you know, there were other smaller randomized control trials. Some of them had to be stopped prematurely because of the recovery data, but, you know, they didn't necessarily show the same or sometimes any benefit with either DEX or other steroids. But I think the recovery data, it does really speak for itself. In the right patient, they should receive dexamethasone if they meet those, you know, specific criteria.
0: Yeah. And and I think even when you look at some of those smaller studies that kind of, quote unquote, were not positive studies I think there's a lot of people who are really set in the, if the p-value is greater than 0.05, it ain't positive, which is a completely outdated way of looking at evidence and understanding what works and what doesn't. So, you know, even in those smaller studies where the trial had to be stopped, often because the REB said, well, we have these data from recovery. If you look at the point estimates." For the most part, those studies were certainly suggesting a benefit, but too small of a sample size to get a p-value below that magical
1: number. Yeah, that's a very fair point. And maybe along those lines, do you want to comment a bit about remdesivir? Because of course, that's another drug where there's been kind of a swinging pendulum for should it be used or not.
0: Yeah, so you know, we're recording this October 18th. So just a few days ago, the data from Solidarity came out, which is the largest trial to look at um, does remdesivir, among other treatments, do they work or not? So this was an international study over 400 hospitals around the world that randomized 11,000 people, and the arms of the study included remdesivir, as mentioned, interferon, hydroxychloroquine, or um calitra, so uh, lopinavir/ritonavir. So the data from that study showed, I guess, unfortunately, that most of the drugs we're using don't work. So when it comes to calitra, no harm, but clearly no benefit. So a hazard ratio or really a relative risk close to one, aka no benefit. Um, interferon was the same. And then with hydroxychloroquine, it actually looks like it worsens outcomes. And so the relative risk of 1.2 suggested a 20% relative increase in mortality, albeit with wide confidence intervals that included the null. And you know, to answer your question about remdesivir. So in the remdesivir arm of the study of over 2000 people who received remdesivir, if you if you compare them to people who received standard of care, no clear benefit in terms of mortality. So so their outcome was dead or alive. However, if you take a closer look, and look at people who are mechanically ventilated, remdesivir potentially worsened outcomes but there weren't a lot of uh, people there weren't a lot of a lot of number of events when you got into those strata so if you take a step back and you look at the outcomes among people who were not mechanically ventilated it's suggested as though there um, might be a benefit so a mortality benefit in the order of about a 15% relative reduction in the risk of mortality
1: yeah okay and you know um The drugs, of course, you know, a lot of things we know that don't work. And we had spoken about hydroxychloroquine, which was a really big deal in the media for lots of different reasons. And again, maybe just to highlight some data that came out just a couple of days ago, actually just yesterday, October 17th, in clinical infectious diseases. um, This study was looking uh, at healthcare workers to see if there was this kind of preventative benefit of hydroxychloroquine. Could we give it to prevent healthcare workers from getting COVID-19? I think they randomized about 1,400 healthcare workers who got either once-weekly or twice-weekly hydroxychloroquine. Unfortunately, no difference in confirmed or probable cases of COVID-19. So I think, you know, when you look at what we've already talked about, when it comes to the data from recovery, uh, there was that big Brazilian randomized control trial. You know, things like hydroxychloroquine, no, there's, there's no indication to use that drug. And there's been lots of confirmation of side effects and adverse effects as a complication.
0: Yeah, completely. And certainly in the sort of the setting of giving it to reduce the risk of disease, you know, we have data there as well that have shown that it really does not help. And I think just going back to the remdesivir piece for, for a second, the tricky part with remdesivir was that some of the first studies had uh, a control group that was historical controls, you know, so how did people do prior to remdesivir being available? And that's not the right control group but when you compared remdesivir to them, it seemed like there was a benefit. And then we had the um, Act One study that was funded by the NIH. Their primary outcome was not mortality, but that study randomized just over what was it? Just over a thousand people, so about 500 remdesivir, 500 placebo, and it showed um, certainly a reduction in recovery time. So you know, you got better, you felt better if you got remdesivir, and then potentially a mortality benefit. So I'm sure there are many, many meta-analyses that are currently going on to determine when you pool the evidence, what is the overall uh, take-home point. And it seems like remdesivir may benefit people who are on supplemental oxygen, um, but not yet intubated. But again, I think we need to wait a little bit longer. And for that reason, the solidarity study is continuing. Um, continuing to enroll people to ramdesivir versus standard of care, but all of the other arms have been dropped. So Kaletra has been dropped, hydroxychloroquine has been dropped, and interferon has also been dropped. And soon there will be additional arms added, including different um, monoclonal antibodies.
1: And one thing that I was just reminded of is that, um, so the NIH, they, they, you know, they have put out treatment guidelines for COVID-19. And interestingly, and perhaps it's related to some of the data you've just spoken to, but When it comes to steroids, they actually recommend that they be used in conjunction with remdesivir. And I guess this is based on some observational data to suggest that steroids might slow viral clearance. And so, you know, if it's not, if it's being administered without an antiviral drug, maybe it'd be less effective. I don't know that, you know, that's a strong argument to make if it's based on observational data. And that's not necessarily played out in the randomized controlled trial data that we have from dexamethasone. But Uh, Yeah, the where exactly remdesivir fits in, I think, is still to be determined.
0: Yeah, and I know that those guidelines sort of got a lot of uh, criticism on Twitter because of that statement, which is like, what on earth are you basing this off of? And, you know, I think it is important for people to kind of go into the weeds because... With Twitter, you can like barely read a headline and think you know what's going on. Of course, with these studies, there's nuance, there's complexity. So, for example, in the Solidarity study, over 50% of patients got steroids. So, over 50% of patients who got remdesivir also got steroids. And in the control arm, over 50% also got steroids. So, we now know that steroids work. So, potentially, if steroids never became standard of care, then maybe remdesivir might have had a benefit. But perhaps with steroids, you know, you can only get so close to a 0% risk of death. So, so maybe it was the fact that, yeah, like steroids kind of, they clearly work. And how much better can you get after that within a certain subgroup of individuals? Again, that's, you know, that is speculation. But moving forward, you know, solidarity is continuing. So we know that moving forward, everyone who's getting remdesivir, for the most part, they're already getting steroids, at least if they're hypoxic. So certainly you can imagine the fact that an analysis can clearly be done, where in solidarity, yes, you're still comparing remdesivir versus standard of care. But if everyone in both groups are getting steroids, then we will know whether or not there is an incremental benefit from remdesivir um, on the background of
1: steroids. Sure. And maybe we can even talk a bit now about what are the other studies that are kind of coming down the pipeline for other treatment aspects. Um, So things like anticoagulation, you've talked a little bit about some of the monoclonal antibodies. I've even seen stuff around vitamin D. So maybe as a bit of a changing direction, we can uh, talk a bit about that stuff.
0: Yes, I will definitely let go of this remdesivir rant. Um, But before I forget, just a couple other short pearls. So number one, it's interesting to realize that remdesivirs pretty well tolerated. But a couple side effects you can certainly see are with the infusion, like phlebitis, for example. And I just also want to mention the fact that remdesivir is probably going to be ridiculously expensive. So if it's going to be really expensive, it should actually benefit. Otherwise, what are we doing? But anyway, yes, moving on. No more remdesivir. You're right. There are all sorts of different treatments coming down the pipeline. So I don't know which ones you want to chat about first. You know, we have anticoagulation, uh, plasma, prone positioning, monoclonal antibodies, vitamin D. I'll let you take your pick there.
1: Sure. Why don't we start off with anticoagulation? Um, So I guess the first question I ask is, well, why are we considering anticoagulation? I think we've known that COVID is associated with an inflammatory and prothrombotic state. And clinically, there's been presentations that include, you know, really high D-dimers, but also reports of both venous as well as arterial thrombosis. I think there was, it was maybe a New York group of data, an autopsy study that was small. They looked at 26 patients, but 11 of those 26 had subclinical thromboembolic disease. And so there's a lot of concern, you know, should we be anticoagulating people or not? I think let's first make it clear that we don't know the answer to that yet. We don't know that there's a role for therapeutic anticoagulation. and There's been a few observational studies which have suggested there could be a mortality benefit, but there's, you know, lots of issues with interpreting that data. There are a few ongoing clinical trials, and the ones that I think I'm aware of include IMPACT as well as Freedom COVID. And so those are really to try to answer the question, is there a role for empiric therapeutic anticoagulation? Now, if you take a step aside, I think everyone is sort of in agreement that at a minimum, however, everyone should be on DVT prophylaxis unless there's some strong contraindication.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And I think strong contraindication we should make that clear, unless your platelet count is less than 50, or you know, grandma's bleeding in front of you, then definitely DVT prophylaxis, and probably taking it an extra step further and making sure it's weight based DVT prophylaxis. So make sure you have a smart pharmacist who's who's helping you out with that. I think, you know, in addition to the New York data of those 26 people, The other most impressive data I've seen is from New York, an observational study published in JAMA a couple months back now of, I think it was a few thousand patients hospitalized. And they found that of people hospitalized to internal medicine, you're looking at sort of 10 some odd percent risk of venous or arterial event and of the venous events, more likely PE than DVT. So, you know, even if the risk is 5% or 6%, that's way higher than what we typically see on the internal medicine ward. So I do like the fact that there's a decent logic to why this question needs to be answered.
1: Absolutely. You know, you are quite involved in some of the clinical trials looking at proning. So do you want to speak to, um, you know, the thought process around proning? Where are we at from the data? Do we know yet the answer to that question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just before I forget, on the anticoagulation standpoint, um those two trials you've mentioned, I actually hadn't heard of those before, but um, a couple local ones. So one is rapid COVID coag. It's randomized, I think 50 some odd patients. And then the Attack study, which has randomized 500 patients to DVT prophylaxis versus full dose anticoagulation. So I wouldn't be surprised, you know, it's October now. I bet you by December, we will have at least one large randomized trial that's completed with data on that. So, yeah, so moving on to prone positioning, I think when the pandemic first hit, there was certainly a lot of anecdotal reports of benefits of prone positioning. So, you know, uh, rather than somebody being on their back, uh, on their stomach, but it's more than that. So you really want to sort of offload the stomach. So you put a pillow under somebody's shoulders and pillow under their pelvis as well. And it's kind of hard to explain without a picture, but just take my word for it that That does a few things. It improves ventilation and perfusion mismatch. It also offloads the diaphragm because when you're on your back, all of your testines and whatnot are pushing up against your diaphragm and making it hard to take a deep breath in. So um, that's another reason why it probably helps. And maybe a couple other mechanisms which I won't go into. So the take-home point is that we do not know if prone positioning helps or not. We know from the ARDS literature, some terrific work published by uh, Dr. Levina Munshi here at Sinai uh, has shown that certainly among people with severe ARDS, there's likely a mortality benefit. But with COVID-19, we don't have a freaking clue. So there are at least a dozen randomized trials going on. I'm the PI along with Amol Verma and Fahad Razak of the COVID-prone study. So that's live in about 15 hospitals in Ontario and the US. And um, we're just actually about done our initial kind of vanguard phase of 30 patients randomized. So I hope to have um, the data out on that. I don't know, maybe the next month or so. And then in Calgary, there's a corona study which is also looking at prone positioning of uh, ward-based patients, um, specifically people who are DNR. Uh, and then COV prone, which is looking at prone positioning of patients who are, you know, either intubated or at the very least uh, in the ICU, or actually, you know what, maybe just in the ICU, but not yet intubated. And they've randomized, I think, almost 200 patients. So time will tell. I just I really don't think observational data can be used to know if something works or doesn't work. So we need these randomized trials.
1: Yeah, I would agree. We really need the randomized control trial data.
0: Yeah, they're a freaking hassle to do though, don't get me wrong, and very expensive.
1: Yeah, yeah good on you for, for trying to coordinate these trials. My goodness, I can't imagine the amount of work that goes into it.
0: Yeah, it's very much like a party planning. So I feel more like a party planner. But think if we want to shift the needle, then that's what we need. Although I'm also very cognizant of the fact that At any moment, I'm sure I'll get scooped by either investigators from Europe or the U.S. But, you know, it's been it has been fun to try to attempt to answer this question. So prone positioning is still in the category of not sure. Other stuff to talk about. Do you want to chat about vitamin D or should I chat about plasma?
1: Yeah, you know, vitamin D, we can just talk about it quickly. Um, I guess the big question is, well, why vitamin D? It seems like vitamin D, we try to make it associated with every disease state known to mankind. Um, In this case, I guess the theory is that vitamin D might contribute to modulation of the innate and adaptive immune system and the immune response. And there was a cohort study, I think it was published in JAMA back in September of this year. It was observational data which showed among patients with lower vitamin D levels, which were measured, I think, a year prior to a diagnosis of COVID-19 they were 1.7 times more likely to test positive for COVID compared to those who had no vitamin D deficiency. With that said, it looks like there's lots of trials in varying stages kind of um, ongoing, Uh, but is there a role for vitamin D in COVID-19 specifically? Uh, Nope, not yet. We don't know the answer to that question, but you know, most people in Canada are vitamin D deficient, Um, but yeah, not specifically for COVID.
0: Yeah, agreed. And you know, there's actually one small randomized trial that was published in Uh, An extremely obscure journal that I'm not going to remember suggesting potentially a benefit. I just don't buy it. So um, the largest randomized trial um, is going on right now. And that one's out of France. And I think as we've seen, you know, France is up to something like 25,000 new diagnoses of COVID each day. So I anticipate they will probably be able to answer that question, uh, hopefully in a timely manner.
1: Uh, And so I guess maybe the last one we can highlight, uh, plasma. What's the deal with Plasma.
0: Yeah. So with convalescent plasma, as the name suggests, it's from patients uh, who've convalesced, you know, who have recovered from COVID-19. Um, they have to be under the age of uh, something obscure, like 67. It's not 70, it's like 67. But anyway, so if you've recovered and you're under six, age 67, you can donate your plasma. And for anyone who's unsure what the heck is plasma, remember that blood is really you know, uh, one part hemoglobin, so one part red cells, white cells, plate cell, platelets, and then plasma. So um, the plasma is where all the um, antibodies kind of hang out. So what do we actually know? Does it work? Does it not work? There's been one study uh, published in JAMA that was from Wuhan, and essentially they had to stop the trial because they ran out of patients to randomize. So the results were promising, but extremely underpowered. So the largest study that I'm aware of is the Conquer study. So I'm one of the site leads for Conquer, randomizing people who are hospitalized and hypoxic to either convalescent plasma versus standard of care. So we we randomized a few people actually just the other week at uh, at Sinai, which was um, you know exciting to be able to en- enroll people in the study. And I think they're up to about 250 patients, so they're almost 25% the way done. And I think. That will be the largest study, although they're also incorporating convalescent plasma into at least one of the ICU studies of patients hospitalized with COVID-19. So again, some promising data. We don't know if it works yet. There was just some really, really bad um, studies done in the US where uh, 30,000 people at an unnamed hospital network received plasma. They didn't randomize anyone, they just gave it. And and it's really unfortunate because if they just stopped and, I don't know, randomized 5% of those 30,000 people, we would now have a definitive answer. So it's really unfortunate that that has occurred. And I think in the US, there's this presumption that it probably works. So really, it's up to um, Canada, Europe, um, other countries to provide the definitive answer. And I think Conquer One will probably be at least one of the studies to do so.
1: Yeah. I look forward to seeing what those results show.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, I don't think we should dive into the monoclonal antibodies because I just don't think there's enough data for us to know, do they work or not?
1: I think that's fair. I think unless you are the president of a certain country, uh, then, you know, it's not something that we're going to be using anytime soon. We need to see the data.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I I completely agree. And then, you know, I should mention so with solidarity, I I think I alluded to this before, but solidarity is now adding a monoclonal antibody arm, and actually two different monoclonal antibody arms. And right now, solidarity is recruiting 1000 patients every month. So once the monoclonal antibodies get selected for the study, within one to two months, we will probably have multiple 1000 patients randomized to it, and therefore should have an answer quite quickly thereafter.
1: I think it's a, it's kind of a pretty amazing when you sort of take a step back and look at, one, the number of studies, but just how quickly they've been able to come online to try to answer questions that need to be answered quickly. Kudos to the people like yourself um, and other researchers out there who are contributing and trying to help answer these really challenging questions.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's been terrific leadership at the level of the World Health Organization and, and the recovery group as well. It kind of feels like you know the US makes a mess and then every other country has to rush to try to clean it up and provide data and evidence so it, you know it's it's really unfortunate that there hasn't been a more organized approach in the US like they've done in the UK because then we'd be way ahead of the game and you got to wonder how much plasma how much hydroxychloroquine remdesivir has already just been given under the presumption that it works so i think a lot of wasted time and money. Uh, but it's terrific that, you know, World Health Organization, the UK have really come together to create these uh, impressive, impressive clinical trial platforms.
1: And so I guess, you know, maybe uh, as the final piece, we can just sort of touch on, are there any pearls that you tend to share with your trainees around COVID-19 beyond what we've touched base about so far?
0: I, I don't think so. I mean, certainly just the importance of, you know, not forgetting everything else. So sometimes when you make the diagnosis of COVID-19, you can get this tunnel vision. So, okay, you made the diagnosis. Uh, Let's deal with that. But let's also pause, take a step back and ask ourselves: are there things that don't fit here? What other medical issues uh, do we need to manage? And then I think it's kind of part and parcel with that. But the importance of, I think you mentioned this before as well, but really good um, communication and more like a housekeeping type of thing, but making sure people get their flu shot, for example. You know, now is the opportunity to provide them with, um, you know, the flu vaccine. So maybe those are just a couple scattered pearls of things I can think of.
1: Yeah, that's good. I think other things that are always just important when you're on the wards is remembering the importance of donning and doffing. And as simple as this stuff is, you know, we would have done it thousands of times before COVID-19, but. I think it's really hit home how important it is to put on everything appropriately, but then also take off your PPE in a safe manner to minimize the risk to yourself as a healthcare practitioner. So that's something that I always try to impress upon people as well. And then, yeah, communication-wise, COVID has introduced a lot of challenges with, you know, family members not being able to be present in the hospital, not being in the in the room. And so other aspects of communication we do this for our patients otherwise but you know picking up the phone and just calling whoever the appropriate next of kin is or a family member to keep them posted on on how things are going
0: yep completely agree all right cool well i think that sort of covers a lot of the different management aspects and also mixes in emerging potential treatments you know what's coming down the pipeline and what should be completely avoided, uh, aka hydroxychloroquine.
1: <laughs> yes, I think that's that's totally fair.
0: And then I know, uh, you know, usually we end with the good stuff. But I didn't even look something up this week, and I feel like we're well over time. But what about you?
1: Uh, yeah, you know what? I did not. So I guess what we will do is our next episode, we will have even better good stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah, there you go. Um, all right, terrific, John. Well, uh, take care and calgary and i guess more importantly stay warm out there Jeez.
1: yeah thanks just bought a toque the other day so uh stay well mike we'll talk to you soon the rounds table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca follow us on twitter at rounds table special thanks to our audio editor emilio garcia flores also thanks to founder of the rounds table amol verma and kieran quinn the previous director we'd also like to give a big thanks to seema marwaha the editor-in-chief at healthy debate for all of the support